Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, I'm going to ask you to travel back in time with me. Picture this. You wake up early on a Monday morning, April 18, 1966, in your quiet suburban home outside Akron. You grab a cup of Folgers from the drip coffee maker on the countertop and pull yourself up to the formica-topped kitchen table. The morning's copy of the Akron Beacon Journal rests there, waiting to be read. Normally, you head on by the table to start the eggs frying on the stove, but not today. Today, you stop abruptly and pull out your chair. Confused by what you see in the headlines, you slowly lower yourself onto the seat. The top headline proclaims yet another missile attack by the U.S. against Vietnam forces in Hanoi. Yet, directly underneath this headline is an illustrated map of the Akron area stretching into western Pennsylvania. A small drawing in the bottom left corner of the map shows two police officers running toward a patrol car, which is illuminated by a flying saucer hovering over it. A closer reading of the headline below the map reveals something remarkable. It reads, Spotted by hundreds, saucer chase sets probers humming. You take another sip of coffee and then glance to the top of the page to check to see that this is indeed the Akron Beacon Journal, not some gossip tabloid of the supermarket variety. You wonder how such a venerable newspaper could print such an outrageous story, and on the first page no less. The day before, Sunday, April 17, 1966, had proven unforgettable to many Ohioans. However, it would prove life-changing for a group of law enforcement officers who witnessed and pursued an unidentified flying object from outside the small town of Randolph, Ohio, to the small village of Conway, Pennsylvania, a distance of about 85 miles. In today's terms, the story would go viral, being picked up by the Associated Press and reported on by a number of trusted newspapers all over the country. A summary of the accounts for that banner news day of April 18, 1966 would go something like this. The strange scenario began when two Portage County Sheriff's deputies, Dale Spohr and Wilbur Neff, were dispatched to check a strange light the size of a house hovering in the sky. The two men laughed to themselves as they listened to the dispatcher describe what a local woman had claimed. It was too high to be a streetlight and too low to be an airplane. It may have been one of the strangest calls the men had ever received. On the way to the location, they came across a red and white 1959 Ford abandoned on the side of State Route 224. They were just outside the tiny village of Randolph, Ohio. The sun had not yet risen, leaving that desolate section of the highway dark and cold. As the two men approached the vehicle on foot, they witnessed a dome-shaped craft rise out of the woods. It was about the size of a three-bedroom house, and the shape would later be compared to the head of a utility flashlight. Deputy Spar estimated it was about 40 feet wide and 18 feet high. Something resembling an antenna extended from the base and was about 15 feet long and 2 feet wide. Spar would later state that it was so bright he could barely stand to look at it, comparing the brightness to the spark of a welder. The color of the light was a bluish-white, which grew in intensity toward the top of the craft. It hummed like a transformer that's been overloaded. The strange craft hovered for a moment, 
but then moved in the deputy's direction as it approached the men who could feel heat emitting from it. Frightened, they ran for their patrol car. It hovered over them for two minutes before moving down the highway. It was about 200 feet in the air, and it would later rise to about 500 or 1,500 feet. Stunned, the deputies radioed dispatch. After stuttering an explanation of what they had just seen, their sergeant ordered them to pursue it. Deputy Spore threw the car in gear and headed out east after the unexplained craft. The sun began to rise, shining in the deputy's eyes. Spore took a glance at the odometer to register a speed of over 100 miles an hour. A second glance at the gas gauge would prove just as troublesome. The pursuit was about to end as their engine was burning on fumes. Luckily, another law enforcement officer had heard their request for assistance over the radio. A local East Palestine officer, a Mr. Wayne Houston, had spotted the object at about 5.35 a.m. after hearing the deputies call for assistance. He joined them as they headed across the Pennsylvania state line. At one point near Rochester, Pennsylvania, Spar made a wrong turn at the bridge and got turned around. They feared they'd lost the craft but were surprised to see it waiting there for them when they found their way back to the highway. It had dropped to an altitude of 500 feet, as though in an effort to help them continue the pursuit. The men claimed some intelligent force was controlling the craft, as it followed the highway exactly. It seemed as though whoever, or whatever this force was, it wanted them to follow. As they approached the small town of Conway, Pennsylvania, Spore was forced to turn into a local gas station for a fill. There, the group would encounter another local police officer who'd been watching the craft while on patrol for the past 10 minutes. Officer Frank Panzanella's own written account would later document his sighting of the strange craft during his patrol early that morning. He first thought it must have been some reflection off a plane, but then realized that the object was hovering. He got out of his patrol car while at the gas station to view it directly. The image didn't change after rubbing his eyes repeatedly. Panzanella decided not to radio what he had been seeing for fear of ridicule. He then watched as the patrol cars from Ohio pulled up to him at the gas station. They asked if he had been seeing the strange object, and he admitted that he'd been watching it for the past ten minutes. At this point in the pursuit, the craft had risen to about 1,000 feet. The group watched as it zoomed upward rapidly to about 3,500 feet. Panzanella had the presence of mind to radio the Pittsburgh airport. The operator at the airport asked if he was sick, and he responded, If I'm sick, then so are these three other patrolmen. They watched as a commercial airliner passed below the object at about 1,000 feet. Panzanella passed on this information to the Air Traffic Control Center, but the object was not visible on radar. The group watched as the craft continued to rise until the sight of it was lost in the sunny morning sky. Various law enforcement jurisdictions along the pursuit route in both Ohio and Pennsylvania would later confirm that they had been inundated with calls that morning, reporting descriptions of the craft matching these officers' reports. A Mantuway, Ohio police chief, Mr. Gerald Buchert, captured a black-and-white photo of the craft, which is, of course, grainy and blurred. 
Mantaway is a small town about 20 miles north of Randolph, where the deputies first began their chase. The photo shows a dome-shaped smudge hovering high in the sky. You can see the photo on Ohio Folklore's Facebook page. Deputy Spar would speak with the reporters that same afternoon. He would be seen shaking as he described the fear he felt during the experience. The six-foot-two-inch former Air Force gunner of the Korean War would state to the press that there are four of us, we're all believers now, referring to each patrol officer who witnessed the event, Spar himself, Neff, Houston, and Panzanella. Investigations of the incident by multiple agencies would begin immediately. Here's a segment of an audio recording of Dale Spohr himself, taken only a day after the incident on April 18th. At nearly 12 minutes long, the interview is lengthy. But you really get a sense for Spar's experience of the entire chase and the fear he felt the whole time. Uh, uh, no uh, 
no indications that uh, anything was going to burn or anything. There was no sounds or explosions from it or blasting or anything that sounded jet. Then we were back across the road and to the east, about two or three hundred feet down the road east of us. Uh, I informed them that uh, we were observing it. Uh, we did not have a camera. Sergeant Schoenfeld advised me that uh, if at all possible to follow the vehicle, to pursue it or keep it under surveillance as long as possible until uh, I could get some cars or some camera equipment or a photographer out there to take a photograph and if at all possible try to identify it. Make definitely sure that it is an object. If you can identify it by name, make so. So the sergeant advised me to do this. We started moving with the vehicle. The vehicle made no attempt to run from us or to escape from us. It uh, gave you a feeling of it was watching you watch it, you know. Uh, and the vehicle moved to the east. It started. It uh, never went over about 63 miles an hour at first or 60 or so. We made a right turn, which would be south on 183. We went to 224. We turned east again. At this time, the vehicle was directly behind us, or this object, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we started east. The vehicle came to us to cross the road again on the south side of 224, maintained an altitude of about, time about 200, 250 feet. It proceeded east, right along the rim of the road, or the edge of the road, just inside the fence line of the fields. It increased its altitude maybe another hundred feet. The illumination from it did light the ground underneath of it. It increased its speed to about 83 miles an hour on the clock. It uh, maintained the same ground speed uh, for about 10 or 15 miles. After uh, getting into Mahoning County, uh, I could uh, stay parallel with it all the way. It crossed at the Berlin Reservoir to the north side of the road. Right across uh, in front of us, uh, we could stay with it very easily at this time. I increased the speed. The vehicle went to 103 miles an hour ground speed. We ran with it. We kept missing connections at various places that cars couldn't get to us with a camera. We pursued it as we were. It seemed as though that uh, I had a quite a tangle of intersections. I was running red light and siren. That uh, the vehicle would slow down and wait for us. Uh, and it would uh, increase its speed again to 103, uh, as long as we could run this way. We picked up the East Palestine cruiser as the only cruiser that was able to make connections with us on the route. And he had no camera. He immediately made the same observation that we were making. We watched it maneuver. We watched it gain and lose altitude, uh, go through a different uh, procedures of, uh, through its travels. Uh, we got to Rochester, Pennsylvania. Uh, we would have lost it there if there had been any chance of losing it. You have to go through a valley and behind some trees. The vehicle gave up its altitude and started down. It hovered over the highway. When we came back out in the 151, it was waiting on us. And waited till we got up to it again. I, uh, like I said, nobody's going to believe it. So we got up to it again. We went through Freedom and started out of Freedom. By then, every time I would have to do a pretty stiff turn, I started sucking air. I guess I was losing all my fuel. 
the tires, I guess, was pretty hot. And uh, I seen this one cruiser sitting in a filling station. And uh, the officer sitting in it from Conway, we didn't have any radio contact with him. We were in the station, we informed him what we were watching. He had been watching the same thing. He didn't know that we were behind it, though. He immediately radioed his station. He told them uh, of the observation that we had pursued it from, uh, from Randolph and that it had been traced from Macklin. They radioed the airport. We were advised uh, shortly after that we should call in before I was stood in the filling station. There was some traffic to the effect that some fighters had been scrambled and as though it knew that it might be in danger, it went straight up in a vertical flight. We watched an airliner fly underneath of it. Uh, directly, a large uh, air transport, uh, probably a Boeing, I would believe it to be a 707. It was a very large craft that went directly underneath this vehicle. Through all the travels and its change, the only distinct projection on the whole thing was what I would say was about 15, 20 feet long. I described it as an antenna. The three of us made the same observation while it was in flight. Uh, it was definitely a, a metallic, uh, I assume it to be a metallic. Uh, it was a vehicle. Uh, it is a made thing or a manufactured thing by someone or someone. It definitely has a means of propulsion. I don't know what it is. It can propel itself. It can maneuver. It has means of navigation. Who controls all this? I, I have the faintest idea. I feel that if it's ours, it's a pretty good trick. If it isn't, we got a problem. Could you tell me, sir, what was going through your mind while you were chasing it? Were you then trying to think what it was? My main thing after the initial shock of it was to try to stay with it from the darkening hour of dawn into daylight to try to make some positive identification to disprove swamp gas or uh, a mirage that I didn't know what it was because I'm not an authority on it. I have never have never seen anything. I just want to be sure what I seen was something. I, uh, uh, I had only one thought in mind and it was if possible to identify it. If it was something I had seen before, I could identify it. I couldn't. I, uh, I, all I can say is it is a vehicle that I have never seen. I definitely say it's a vehicle, and I'll continue to say it, and nobody will change my mind. If they believe it, okay. If they don't, why, that's, uh, that's okay, too. Did I know you, it's there. Did you believe in UFOs before this incident? No, I, uh, I didn't read about them. I had no interest in them whatsoever. Do you believe in them now? You can bet I do. To your knowledge, uh, today, has the Jets seen them? Have they told you anything about that? They haven't told me anything. They uh, they had no discussion with me. Uh, uh, they uh, Anything that uh, has happened before, other than uh, brief things that other people have stated, I have never... Uh, Never heard. I never paid any attention to any of it. I never read about them. I uh, I disregarded the matter completely, more or less. Uh, my time spent when other people were reading about UFOs is if I any spare time. Uh, I kind of like to fish myself. <laughs> Could you tell us to what extent you have been in contact with the federal government's uh, UFO agency? Well, the only. 
contact I've had with the government agency right at this time is uh, Wright Patterson Field. I uh, talked to a major. Uh, he wanted me to identify the object very briefly for them. Uh, I did. He seems to be more interested in obtaining the negative of the photographs that Chief Booker t made tonight. He uh, uh, doesn't seem to. Uh, be interested in what I have to say at all. At first, he wanted to know how long of plants I had at it or, you know, if it was a glob of light or not, and I told him it was definitely not, that I had visual contact and under surveillance for 85 minutes. I, uh, I watched it through the entire flight. I also followed it for 86 miles, which I consider, uh, uh, I may have gone further. I was out of gas. I, uh, I, uh, know that it was a vehicle and uh, if uh, they want to discount it or rule it out this is perfectly okay by me. The most prominent investigation was headed by Lieutenant Colonel Hector Cantinella of the Air Force's Project Blue Book Division. This project was based at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. It began in 1952 with the purpose of investigating claims of UFOs to ensure national security. Quintanella took charge of the project in 1963, and it was rumored that he was given the undesirable post when he showed reluctance to take a leadership role in the escalating war in Vietnam. Project Blue Book would receive much criticism from other government agencies, including Congress members, law enforcement agencies, and others. They were accused of poor investigative practices and nonsensical post-hoc explanations of the sightings they investigated. The Portage County UFO chase serves as a good example of what the public came to view as the agency's ineptitude and incompetency. After five days of intense media coverage of the unexplained event, Quintanella reached out to the Portage County Sheriff's Office and asked to speak with Deputy Dale Spohr. When he finally reached him on the phone, Quintanella reportedly said, So tell me about this mirage that you saw. The phone interview would only last a few minutes longer before Quintanella ended it. He would not go on to interview any of the other officers or hundreds of witnesses who claimed to have observed the craft that night. He would soon announce the project's conclusion that the officers had first mistaken a communication satellite for the UFO, and then later in the chase, had mistaken the planet Venus for the craft. The conclusion was widely panned. All four of the officers involved objected to it. In their initial written accounts of the event, they had noted observing other celestial bodies, including Venus, and the moon in addition to the UFO. One of the Blue Book Project's most vocal critics at the time was Ohio Congressman William Stanton. He represented Ohio's 11th District, which encompassed the area where the chase took place. He was quoted as saying, The Air Force has suffered a great loss of prestige in the community. Once people entrusted with the public welfare no longer think the people can handle the truth, then the people, in return, will no longer trust the government. The Portage County Sheriff, Ross Dustman, also came out strenuously against the Air Force claims. An Akron Beacon Journal article published on April 23, 1966, quoted him as saying, 
I'll go along with my men, deputies Spar and Neff. It was not a satellite, and it was not Venus. A follow-up article was published in the Akron Beacon Journal only four days later, on April 27th, with the headline, Air Force Airs on UFOs. It detailed the conclusions of another agency, the National Investigative Committee for Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP. The organization submitted its report to Congressman William Stanton. It concluded that Project Blue Book's investigation showed evidence of bias and poor investigative practices. It challenged the conclusion that the officers had at one point been chasing the planet Venus, as they couldn't have given chase to an object fixed so distant in the sky. They questioned how officers from other jurisdictions were able to witness and describe similar observations, which couldn't be accounted for by a satellite or planet. They questioned how the object was able to illuminate spots on the ground below it. They questioned how it was able to make a humming sound that all four officers heard as well. Other observations, like the craft's dome-like shape, were not accounted for in the Air Force's report. Deputy Spar himself was quoted as saying, I'm positive of what I was chasing, and I don't agree it was Venus. I know what I saw, and I believe it, and I'll never change my mind. I was a non-believer before, and never had any thought in my mind that the Air Force couldn't explain any one of these things. I believe what I saw, and nothing short of heaven or hell, is going to change my mind. Only a week later, Common Pleas Judge Robert E. Cook made a public request that Congressman William Stanton start a full and independent investigation of the event, citing his lack of confidence in the Air Force's conclusions. Judge Cook, himself a former congressman and Air Force veteran, bemoaned the damage and reputation the Air Force had taken within the local community. Unfortunately, No follow-up investigation ever occurred, according to my research. For all the public upset about the event, Deputy Dale Spar would come to pay the biggest price for the poor handling of the investigation. In the end, he would be the only one of the officers to remain in the public eye, sticking to his story. The others learned to deflect questions and refused to speak of it to anyone. Wilbur Neff, the deputy who had accompanied Spar through the entire chase, suffered such ridicule that he refused to make any further comment on the subject. His wife had said she hoped to never see him in the state he was on that night, white as a sheet and in shock. Neff had told his wife that if the thing landed in their backyard, they wouldn't tell a soul. Chief Gerald Buchart, the man who took the photo of the object, would only state that the whole subject should be left alone. Frank Panzanella, the local officer from Conway, Pennsylvania, who called the Pittsburgh airport, had his telephone removed from his house and refused all requests for interviews. Wayne Houston, the East Palestine, Ohio officer, who responded to Spar's request for assistance, resigned his post of seven years, moved to Seattle, and became a bus driver. He stopped using Wayne as his first name and now went by Harold. His last known comment on the subject was, quote, Sure, I quit because of that thing. People laughed at me, and there was pressure. The city officials don't like police officers chasing saucers. Spore was the only one of the group left talking about the incident. Journalist John DeGroote wrote an article about him that was picked up by the Associated Press in October 1966. 
It would detail the demise of Spar's career, his marriage, and his mental health. Spar was lonely. He suffered recurring nightmares of the events of that night. DeGroote would note that the UFO Spar once chased was now chasing him. In fact, Spar claimed to have witnessed the saucer once more while driving alone east on Interstate 80. He believed it was following him, and it's questionable as to the state of mind he now suffered. DeGroote had found Spore living in a cheap motel room in Salon, Ohio. He had quit his job on the force, he separated from his wife and children, and had lost 40 pounds. He was trying to make ends meet by painting people's houses. He would tell DeGroote, quote, If I could change all that I have done in my life, I would change just one thing, and that would be the night we chased that damn thing, that saucer. In the immediate days following the chase, Spohr had been overwhelmed by media interviews, phone calls, and interrogations. He also received derisive letters from random sources telling him what to do if little green men came after him. One confusing night in July, with company at his house, Spohr suddenly grabbed his wife and shook her by the arms, leaving bruises. He didn't know why he did it. She filed charges and Spohr was jailed. He would then turn over his badge. A local newspaper followed with the story the next day on the deputy who chased a UFO and then was thrown in jail for spousal abuse. As soon as he was released, Spore took off and ended up in a seedy motel room. He came to name the UFO that haunted his dreams, Floyd, Spore's own middle name. At 34 years old, he saw himself as a freak with nothing left. He admitted that over the past few months he'd been acting strangely and out of character, leading to the loss of his job and his family. He blamed it all on the encounter with the saucer. About two weeks after DeGroote's first article on Spore was published by the AP, a second article followed. Spore's certainty that he was alone and that no one cared for him was proven untrue. The first article garnered sympathy from people all over the country. He'd been inundated with letters of support. A 15-year-old girl from Alabama sent him her allowance money for the week. A letter from Tucson, Arizona said, quote, You cannot expect others to understand what they have not experienced. Another letter from Tulsa, Oklahoma said, Your story touched my family deeply, and we sincerely pray that everything turns out all right for you. Spar received letters from others who had claimed to witness strange things in the sky and were too afraid to come forward about it. They expressed admiration for his courage and fortitude. The support was well-timed. About a week earlier, Spar had torn the ligaments in his shoulder and could no longer work as a painter. And the city of Ravana, Ohio, had sent him a summons to appear in court for an unpaid 50-cent parking ticket he incurred during the media frenzy in the days after the chase. Despite these difficult circumstances, Spar reported feeling encouraged by the support from strangers. He told DeGroote, People really do care, don't they? And that's enough for me. Unfortunately, the care he felt at that time would not last. Spar would disappear for a period of about 10 years following this last media appearance. Occasional articles would surface on the mysterious whereabouts of the deputy who once encountered a flying saucer named Floyd. Reporters speculated whether he was out searching for Floyd. 
They pondered over the silence of every other officer who witnessed these events that night. They pined for one more interview, but were stymied at every turn. The only person of interest that was responding to requests was Ross Dustman, the man who'd been sheriff of Portage County that fateful night. He vouched for Spar's sanity and composure in the time he'd known him before the incident. He also remarked on how well Spar had handled himself in the days which immediately followed the chase. He had remained composed and his story consistent. It was only after relentless ridicule and opposition from the Air Force, of which Spar was a veteran, that his life slid out of control. On February 27, 1977, the Akron Beacon Journal would publish a feature article on Spar. He had come out of the shadows and broken his decade of silence. Another journalist, a Mr. Bob von Sternberg, would have the chance to obtain the answers so many had been seeking for so long. Spar admitted that he had initially gotten caught up in a mission for vindication. When the other officers pulled away from the scorn and the ridicule, Spar pushed on. His dogged determination nearly proved the end of him. The more I set, the bigger target I gave people to shoot at, he concluded. In his wallet, he kept a picture of himself from earlier times, well before that unforgettable day in April 1966. Perhaps it was a reminder of who he once was, or what he longed to return to. At his worst, Spar was homeless, sleeping in gas station bathrooms. But he'd eventually managed to turn things around. He would move 300 miles to his home state of West Virginia, where he would find a new partner and marry her. Yet through all these challenges, one thing remained the same. He swore he'd go to his grave with the knowledge of what he saw that night. He had tried to convince himself it hadn't been real, but he decided he couldn't live a lie. And Spore was angry. Angry especially at Lieutenant Colonel Quintanella, the head of Project Blue Book, who was set on discrediting him. Just how did Spar, an Air Force gunner in the Korean War, mistake the saucer for a satellite and then Venus? Accusations that maybe he'd hallucinated the whole thing were incredulous. Just how did he, the other officers, and the hundreds of others who witnessed the events that night share in a simultaneous, singular hallucination lasting nearly 90 minutes? Spore recalled the desperation and the utter loneliness he dealt with during the years prior. The loneliness was the worst. He felt abandoned by everyone, and it crystallized on the day when he sat shivering on the Portage County Courthouse steps. He'd just been arrested for unpaid parking tickets. His motel room had been ransacked and his car repossessed. The lesson he learned in that awful moment was, if you don't have people on your side, you just can't make it. No one can. Despite these painful circumstances, Spar pressed on, moving from one job to the next. His impoverished state meant he couldn't pay child support, and once he managed to find employment, his wages were garnished. When an employer would learn about his sordid past, they'd quietly find a way to usher him out the door. No business wanted that kind of publicity. Through all of this, his experience that day still haunted him. He desperately wanted to tell his story and receive the respect he deserved. He planned to write a book, but those plans fell flat. Many other people wrote books on the subject, on his very experience. They embellished, exaggerated, or simply lied to sell books. 
that infuriated Spohr and fanned the flames of his resentment. The story didn't even feel like his own anymore. One day, he got the gumption to go to a meeting of UFO enthusiasts who were having a presentation on his own unique story. He showed up in disguise to see what everyone was saying. When the untruths started flying, Spohr stood up and removed his disguise. He lit into the group, spewing years of bitterness and rage. By April 1975, Spar had moved to Amstead, West Virginia, where he had been raised. He wanted to be close to his mother. He was hoping for something of a fresh start. Surprisingly, he got one. He married his second wife, and together they bought a taxi company and began driving cabs. Although successful in business, Spar never built the social networks he once had. The couple mainly kept to themselves, as neighbors kept their distance from them. Remarkably, another publicized sighting of three strange lights in the sky occurred 10 miles from his home in West Virginia. Spar had heard from neighbors and other local law enforcement officers about the growing hysteria, but refused to go looking for the lights himself. He'd invested more than a decade of his life in that sort of thing, and he'd had more than his fill. Reports on Dale Spar in the media would again go quiet after this in-depth interview in 1977. However, a Google search reveals one interview given by his son, a Mr. James Evans, to a reporter in the Cleveland area in April 2016. It was the 50-year anniversary of the legendary chase. Spohr and his first wife divorced shortly after the incident, when his two sons were still quite young. The boys would later be adopted by a stepfather and had no awareness that Spar was their biological father. That is, until the youngest... James Evans, reached the age of 13. He and his brother and mother had been watching Good Morning America one day when a tall man began speaking about his unusual encounter with a flying saucer. Their mother would acknowledge that Spar was indeed the boy's father. After phone calls were placed to the television studio, arrangements were made for Spar to come see his sons. Spar would explain to the boys what came of his life since that fateful day. It had taken quite a while, but he had finally gotten his life back on track. After spending some time in his hometown in West Virginia, Spar moved back to Ohio and settled in Rocky River, a suburb of Cleveland. He and his wife opened a bar called The Avenue on West 65th Street and Detroit Avenue. He'd been sought out by Steven Spielberg's production company to do some consulting work on the 1977 movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind which featured a scene inspired by Spar's experience. The scene involved police chasing a UFO through Ohio. Quietly, Spar acknowledged to his sons that he believed Floyd was still following him and that he had caught glimpses of the saucer on a few occasions. Spar died on April 4, 1983, at the age of 51 years. He succumbed to pneumonia after contracting the flu. His son, James Evans, would recall the funeral vividly, noting his surprise at the large number of guests who had come to pay their respects. Among the attendees were a group of Inuit Eskimos. They offered no explanation for their connection to the man. Today, we are left with the memory of these events which remain unexplained. The hysteria which ruled at the time is evident in the flurry of national newspaper articles that centered on a rural Ohio county for a few months in 1966. The narrative shifts from the spectacle of the event itself 
to the enigmatic silence and disappearance of the public figures involved. All save one, that is, the tragic figure of Dale Spar. He became an unlikely protagonist, one who never sought the limelight, yet he felt compelled to have his story heard. He went up against the forces that be and weathered the storm of ridicule and scorn. Although Spar would eventually put his life back together, he would never recant his claims. After all those years, Spar felt a connection to whatever he saw in the sky on that day, and he believed it was still chasing him. Most of us long to catch a glimpse of something beyond our routine lives. Some of us devote great time, energy, and resources in doing so. Think of all the ghost hunters, the storm chasers, and UFO enthusiasts out there. That curiosity for something beyond ourselves is a driving force. That sense of wonder is something we're born with. But there's something of a cautionary tale in the story you've just heard. Spore and his fellow officers weren't out looking for UFOs that night. I guess sometimes the unexplained finds its way to us. And when that happens, none of us knows how we'll react. Some of us might choose to deny what we've seen and experienced. Others of us might choose to hold on to the question and keep wondering what it all meant. That's the path that Spar chose, and he paid a heavy price for it. What choice would you make? I suppose you'll only know if or when the unexplained comes searching for you. This concludes our episode on the Portage County UFO chase of 1966. I hope you've enjoyed listening. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. And if you have a story you'd like featured in a future episode, please let me know. Ohio Folklore is easily found on Facebook. Thanks again for taking time to ponder what we know about Ohio's history and perhaps what we don't yet understand. And as always, keep wondering.